0: You' remain standing and turn in your Bibles to page one. Genesis chapter one, verse one. It's not too often that you can all turn to the same page in the Bible with all different versions and whatnot. Uh, but we're going to be starting a new sermon series over the next couple of weeks, uh, looking at an overview of the first five books of the Bible. And so we're starting with Genesis. And I know in your bulletins, the passage is printed there, and it's long. We're not going to read that whole thing. Uh, We're going to read uh, Genesis 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to skip down to to verse uh, 28 and read through the end. So Genesis 1, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And if you skip down to uh, to actually to verse 26, excuse me, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth And there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. And as you do, if you would please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and honoring in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned, this morning we are starting a new sermon series. It's a sermon series on the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Bible. And it's going to look a little different, so I'm warning you. Uh, It's going to have a little bit of a different feel to it. You know how it is when you're in in an airplane. You start off on the ground and you see what's around you. You see the detail of things that are happening, uh, all that's going on on the ground. And then after takeoff, uh, you get to see another perspective. You have that 30,000 foot view where you see all the the fields and the forests. Uh, You see the rivers. You see off into the distance the mountains. Uh, We're going to be taking a 30,000 foot view over the first five books of the Bible, over the Pentateuch, uh, to kind of get major themes to understand what God is doing through these books, uh, these foundational books for the rest of Scripture, Uh, understanding the big picture, how it all fits together. Uh, Like I said, it's going to have a little bit of a different feel to it. Uh, Sometimes it may feel a little bit more like teaching on occasion rather than preaching. There is definitely a fine line between the two of those that we're going to navigate over the next several weeks. And uh, you may have received this morning a handout. It's a full sheet, front and back, uh, with fill uh, with blanks there that you could fill in. I'm going to be providing one of these every week so that you can kind of follow along with what you're do- with what we're doing. Uh, also, something that you can take home with you as well. So, um, so that's what we're going to be doing. It's going to be a wild ride. It's going to be fast and furious as we go through five books in several weeks, Um, but it's going to be very exciting to to see how God uses these books uh, that are so foundational uh, to the rest of Scripture. So first of all, the Pentateuch, it's a big word. What does Pentateuch mean? Well, it's Greek, and it means five books or five scrolls, because the Pentateuch, the books were originally written on scrolls. Uh, and the five first books of the Bible that we'll be studying over the next several weeks are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're known as the books of the law. They're known as the books of Moses. Uh, they're known as the Torah. Um, these are the books that we're talking about. Moses is the author. Moses is the author of these five books of the Bible. Now, there is a challenge to Mosaic authorship. Uh, Recently, there is this idea called a documentary hypothesis. I feel like you need to know about this uh, even though we don't subscribe to this. Uh, Multiple authors over hundreds of years are believed to have written this um, different times, different places. It's known by the the letters JEPD because each of these different writings uh, are associated to different people. Uh, or different groups of people. Um, But there's several reasons why we don't subscribe to this. Um, One, we believe, based on tradition, that Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible. But we have something even greater than tradition. We have the words of Christ. And to me, that's what seals the deal. Uh, Often when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he says something along the lines of, now what did Moses tell you? For example, in Mark chapter 12, he's having a a discussion with the Sadducees. These are people who didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they ask him a question about the resurrection, and this is how he responds to them. And this is verses 24 to 27. Jesus said to them, it's not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So if Jesus says that these are the books of Moses, I think we have a strong foundation to stand on to say, that Moses is the author of these books. But when did Moses write these? This is where it gets exciting, I feel, because it's so important to understand when and where these books are written. They were written by Moses while the Israelites were wandering in the desert as they're traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land. So imagine this. Imagine that you grow up and the world around you is desert. Desert. You have a nomadic lifestyle, and all you know is the desert. Your parents have shared stories with you about this far-off land called Egypt, but you have never been there. You've never set your eyes on this land called Egypt. And they tell you about this promised land that you're going to, but it seems like you never are getting there, and you've never set your eyes on that as e- uh, either. They keep telling you about, about God But you have so many questions. This is the context into which Moses is writing. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, inspired Moses to write the Pentateuch to answer these questions for the people of God. Questions like, who is God? Who is God? What is He like? How do we worship Him? What does He want us to do? Questions like, who am I? Who are we as a people why are we wandering in the desert? Will this ever end? Why is life so difficult? Is this ever going to get any better? This is the context into which Moses pens the first five books of the Bible. And the context is so key because it gives us insight into why these books were written. It gives us insight into what was included and what is not included. Um, and so as we march through these books... There are going to be several themes that will keep popping up again and again, and I'm going to mention those briefly so that we have an overall context of what we're talking about here as we go through the Pentateuch. First overall theme is that God is our King who is establishing His kingdom over a hostile world in order to display His glory. God is our King who is establishing His kingdom over a hostile world in order to display His glory. You know, the theme of the kingdom is such a major theme that permeates all of Scripture, not just the Pentateuch. Think of it this way. If you trace the story arc of the Bible um, from Genesis through Revelation, it's the story of God's kingdom, of the creation, the fall, the redemption, and the consummation of His kingdom. We see that over 66 books. Of of the Bible. Jesus spoke of God's kingdom often. Uh, One of the first things that that he preached was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he summarized it in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as we go through these books, God's going to reveal more to us about this theme of the kingdom and how that Uh, permeates all of Scripture but uh, the Pentateuch is not only reveals a a king to us not only does it reveal a kingdom but it also reveals the people of God you can't have a kingdom without people inside the kingdom right you need uh, you need a people in order to have just a kingdom so God chooses a people for himself he enters into relationship with them by making covenants which we'll look at several of them Uh, Covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant with Moses. And within the context of this covenant relationship with his people, God makes promises, beautiful promises to his people. And we begin to see the fulfillment of those promises through these books. And ultimately, what we'll see is these fulfilled in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So what the Pentateuch does for the Israelites and for us is it reveals who God is, who his people are. It reveals the character of God, and it gives identity and purpose to his people. Uh, It tells them who he is based on the things that he has done, and it tells God's people why they are and why they are created. So these are some of the major themes that we'll be looking at over the next several weeks as we go through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy. Well, um, so this morning we're going to start with Genesis. And because Genesis is so foundational, it seems silly to, to preach a sermon on the book of Genesis. We're going to break it up into two parts. Uh, this week we're going to look at Genesis 1 through 11, and next week we're going to look at Genesis 12 through 50. This week we're going to look at the king and his kingdom. The king and his kingdom. Next week we'll look at the, the people of God or uh, the people of the kingdom. So, you know how Genesis starts, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So as the curtain is lifted on Scripture, on the cur- as the curtain is lifted on history, the first thing we see is nothing. We see God and nothing else. We see an emptiness. We see a void. It's like we see an empty stage if if the curtain is unveiled. Everything is formless. There is a void. There is chaos. There is emptiness. That is until God begins to speak. And as he speaks, he creates the world and everything in it it all begins to form out of nothing. Ex nihilo is what we call it, out of nothing. It's not like uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where God has taken some things that were already there, and he forms them into man, or he takes this matter, and then he creates the world from it. He takes nothing. There is nothing there. And he simply speaks, and existence happens. This is incredible. Nothingness becomes something. It's amazing. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God taking the chaos and he gives it form. He takes the emptiness and he fills it. And why does he do it? He does it for his glory. He does it to reveal his character, who he is. If we look at the end of Scripture, if we go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And as we read this morning, as the highlight of all of creation, God creates human beings in his own image. Human beings are different from everything else in all of creation. Because we share God's image. We are not God. We are not an extension of God. These are important distinctions. We are made in His image. We share characteristics with Him. We are like no other created thing. People are special. And God has a special relationship with us. He gives us a task. He gives us the task of multiplication and dominion over creation. We are tasked with filling God's kingdom with images of the king, with us, with more people. That is our job. And He gives us control. He gives us the the ability to have dominion over creatures and over creation. What God is doing is that He is giving Human beings, an identity and a purpose. And because He is the creator of the kingdom, He is also in complete and utter control of everything. He establishes order in His kingdom. Six days He creates, and on the seventh day He gives a Sabbath. He establishes our order with Sabbath. He creates man and woman and He gives them to each other. And he gives us the order of marriage. Um, He is creating order out of chaos. And he designated his relationship with human beings to be based on obedience. Because he is God and we are not. He is the creator. We are the created. He gave us everything that they needed for food except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he calls on human beings to obey their king. And he lays out the consequences. The consequences of disobedience would be a difficult life and ultimately death. So you know the story. If you read through Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, everything is great. And then, after only three chapters, the third chapter of Scripture, it all seems to come unraveling. Everything seems to fall apart. The fall. Human beings exercised their God-given ability, their God-given ability to choose between God and their own desires, and they chose themselves. They chose sin. And suddenly everything in God's creation is affected. Death enters the world along with pain and suffering and grief and fear and shame. Where once Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, now suddenly they're hiding themselves. They're covering themselves up because they feel shame. Weeds sprout from the ground. Work becomes hard. Life is no longer paradise. Instead, life is painful and life is difficult. And that evil progresses. And Moses continues uh, with the story, and he tells us what it was like, what it got to be with life after the fall in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So God sends a flood sends a flood to punish evil in the world. Later on, he sees the pride of man after the flood, and he confuses the languages of people and scatters them over the whole world because we have become too proud. But, but, despite the presence of sin in the world, God has not lost control. God is sovereign and this is his sovereign plan. The sudden and complete collapse of the perfection of creation did not take God by surprise. In fact, this is the crazy part. It was his plan all along. Through this seemingly tragic turn of events, God is revealing to us the depths of his character. He is revealing to us his love His mercy, His kindness, His forgiveness, His power, His justice, His redemption. Without the fall, how do we know that God is a redeeming God? We wouldn't. He promised the people in His kingdom that He would defeat evil and that He would make everything new. And immediately following the fall, God gives us the very first promise of redemption. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He is speaking to the serpent who has tempted Adam and Eve uh, into the fall. And as he is cursing the serpent, he gives the first promise that he will redeem the world. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. From the very beginning, God promised that He would send a Redeemer who would defeat all the evil in the world. And as we go throughout the Pentateuch, we will see how the Israelites began to see that promise being fulfilled. Ultimately, the promises are fulfilled when Jesus comes again. And we're still waiting for the consummation of that promise. And they will be completed when Christ comes again uh, to judge the living and the dead. So, how's that for the quickest overview of Genesis 1 through 11 that you probably have ever experienced? Uh, so, there's some major themes here that we're talking about in Genesis 1 through 11. Um, obviously, there's more than we can cover in, in just a uh, half an hour on a Sunday morning. But there are some very important things for us to realize. And the, the question that came to my mind is, what would we lose from the Bible? What would we lose from our faith if Genesis 1, from 1 through 11 was removed from Scripture? If it started with Genesis 12, what would we lose? Um, first of all, God would not be our creator. This is huge. God would not be our creator if we removed Genesis 1 through 11 from the Scripture. If God is not the creator of the world, what are we left with? We are left with a God who is no longer all-powerful, who is not in complete control. A God who is no longer all-powerful and in complete control is one who is not over-creation. Instead, He is one who is subject to creation. Instead of being all-powerful, His power has limitations. This means that there are things that He cannot do, if this world came about by itself simply through chance circumstances, which is what we teach in our schools now, if it came about simply by chance, then God has no control and He is the one who is not in charge. And if God is not the Creator, then in reality He is not God. If we lose the creation, we lose God and if we lose God what are we left with? we're left with a culture that has no absolutes we're left with chaos and we're left with emptiness what we're left with is the exact opposite of creation if everything is chance rather than created then everything is arbitrary and people can simply do what they want. For those of you who are studying the book of Judges in Sunday school uh, now, uh, there's this mantra that goes throughout the book of Judges. Uh, There was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever whatever they thought was right. That's what we have when there is no God. Everyone does whatever they think is right. Do you experience that now? Do you see that in our culture? That is where we are heading. Honestly, that's kind of where we are right now. It's a scary thought, isn't it? But that is where we are when we remove Genesis 1-11 through 11 from our Bible. But instead, we have this in Scripture. We have a God who is the Creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is God. He is in charge. He is all powerful. He is in control. There are absolutes. We have truth. There is no such thing as chance. We have a God who is sovereign and who is in control. But what about us? How would it affect us if Genesis 1 through 11 were removed from our scripture? Well, if Genesis 1 through 11 was removed, human beings would be void of purpose and of identity. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Stephanie and I were in Nashville. She was with the kids at uh, her mother's house, and I was at a place called OnSite. For those of you who don't know what OnSite is, uh, it is a place where my mother-in-law and stepfather-in-law work. uh, It's uh, basically a place where people come to do intensive counseling. So yes, your pastor was in intensive counseling for a week uh, while he was gone. I uh, didn't have access to my cell phone, uh, no computer, completely cut off. Uh, so if you tried to contact me during that week, I'm sorry. It wasn't that I didn't want to contact you back. I literally could not. So um, I was there doing a program called Living Centered. Uh, it's really hard to describe what the program was. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's designed for you to reconnect with yourself. Basically what it is, it's nine months to a year of intensive counseling packed into six days. And there is a, a group of 40 uh, participants that come together from all over the country, even all over the world. Uh, there was a couple of people from England, one from Germany who was there. And uh, you're broken down from these 40 participants into four smaller groups of 10. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> kind of like our missional community groups. <laughs> but um, so you're, you're here, and the first night, what you do is that you have that awkward time where you're meeting 40 people that you've never met before in your life. And one of the things, one of the rules that there is for this week at OnSite is that you're not allowed to, to reveal your profession, who you are. Um, because so often we're defined by our profession. Um, so often we, we find our identity in that And it also puts us on different levels. Uh, And so what we were required to do is we were required to be one of two professions. You could either be a brain surgeon or you could be a chimney sweep. (laughs) So most people chose chimney sweep uh, because they thought that that was fun. Um, But it makes getting to know people at first really hard because what's usually the third question that you ask besides, well, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? So you get to that third question and suddenly you hit a brick wall. And then you stare at each other for a few minutes and you don't know where to go. Um, And so it makes it initially very awkward. Uh, But on the first night, uh, what they do is they put you in a a big room and you're sitting on chairs in a big circle and you just introduce yourself. Uh, You say what your name is and what you hope to gain from this week, from this experience. And so I'm sitting about two-thirds of the way around the circle, and people are, you know, saying their name, where they're from, and and what they hope to gain. And then the microphone is passed to the man who is sitting next to me. He gives his name and where he is from, and then he says this, and if I can get through this without uh, uh, breaking up, this will be a miracle. He said very quietly, but into the mic, eyes looking down, he said, I am a completely worthless human being who has destroyed everything in my life. And then he turns to me and he hands me the microphone. <laughs> and as you can imagine, like, the air is just sucked out of the room. Everyone kind of gasps and is looking at each other and looking at the ground, not knowing what to do. Um, I am feeling, what do I do? Do I put my hand uh, on, on him? Like, do I, put my, do I give him a hug? Like, I, it was incredibly awkward. And so what I do is I try to put a smile on my face, and I say, well, my name is Mike, um, and just try to proceed. And it gets back around the circle, and it, it was just an extremely awkward experience. But this man was sharing his heart. He felt literally that he was worthless the amazing thing was by the end of the week he had learned the truth about himself is that he wasn't worthless instead he had value and you could see it by how his demeanor changed it was amazing in the beginning of the week he would eat all his meals by himself but by the end of the week he had a smile smile on his face he was engaging with others and it was incredible Because of our creation as an image bearer of God, each and every person has infinite worth and infinite value. Gender, race, whether you are old or young, slave or free, whether you have a disability or a disorder or whatever, it does not matter. Whatever your social status, whatever your political party, whatever your religion or sexual orientation, it does not matter. People have infinite worth and value because we are created in the image of God. Why did Jesus spend so much time with the tax collectors, with the prostitutes, with the sinners? He spent time with them because they had infinite value to him. Those people matter to God. There is not a person from any time or from any place that does not matter to God. He has made them in his image, in his very likeness. If we truly believe the truth of Genesis 1 to 11, How would that affect our view of ourselves and our view of others? Honestly, our self-worth would skyrocket. But instead, we believe the lies that Satan tells to us. We believe the lies that he says. When he says, you're no good, or that you don't matter, or you have no value, or that no one loves you. These are the lies that Satan tells us. And it's not true. Our truth is this: that God has made you, and God loves you. Our truth is that you do matter. You have infinite worth and infinite value, not because of what you do, not because of your profession or how much money you make or the the fact that you are a mother and have children. You have infinite value because God has made you in your image, in His image. And he loves you. You have value simply because of who you are. Not only would our self-worth skyrocket, and I'm not talking about our self-esteem, I'm talking about our sense of worthiness, that would skyrocket. But how we treat others would also change dramatically. If everyone treated one another as image-bearers of God, imagine how different this world would be. You know what's going on in our world right now. If everyone treated each other as image-bearers of God, instead of fighting and divisions and of wars and of terrorism, we would experience unity, compassion, If everyone treated one another as image bearers of God, imagine how different the church would be. This is where it really hits home for us. Imagine if we actually treated people like they had value and if they had worth. Imagine what the church would be like. You know what we're accused of as the church, right? We're accused of being judgmental. We're accused of being unloving. And whether or not that is actually true, that is how people perceive us. But imagine if the opposite were actually true. Imagine if the church were accused of being too loving towards others. Imagine if that was the accusation of us. You know what the church would be accusing us of then? The church would accuse us of being like Jesus. So if we understand what Genesis 1 through 11 is telling us is that we have infinite worth because of our creation, in the image of God, and that the people around us have infinite worth as well. If we lost Genesis 1 through 11 from our Bibles, what we would also lose is that we would lose a proper understanding of sin. And this is where we're going to conclude this morning. Sin is real. Genesis 1-11 through tells us that. Sin is real, and it does not originate from God. Evil in the world is a result of our actions as human beings. God gave us a choice, and we decided that we would rather be God than to obey God. And as a result, all of creation became subject to the power and the effects of sin. It's not God's fault. Instead, the guilt lies with us. And we see very clearly that God hates sin and He deals with it in an appropriate manner. Sin and evil have no rightful place in God's very good creation. They don't belong, yet they have moved in and they have taken up residence here. But because God is the Creator, because He is all-powerful, because He is in complete and utter control, He will deal appropriately with with that which does not belong. Even back in the beginning, God promised that He would deal with sin by sending a Redeemer, by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, the One that would crush the head of Satan. God promised that it was His Son who would receive the punishment of death that was the result of our sin. And He would deal with sin through Christ in such a way that He would display the most incredible aspects of His character. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world. How do we know that He loved the world? That He sent His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Psalm 103 verses 1-5 through 5, reveals God's character to us. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. This is our God. Even in the very first chapters of the Bible, we see the foundations of the gospel story clearly being laid out for us. So what? So what do we do from here? Where do we go from Genesis 1 to 11? We believe. We believe that our God is the creator God. He is the king of the far reaches of the universe. He is a God who is complete and utter control. We believe that God made us human beings in his own image. You bear the image of the king. And you have infinite worth and infinite value. And so does everyone who has ever lived. And from here, we believe the gospel, that our sin is real, that God hates sin, and through the death of Christ, our sins have been dealt with. That the punishment of sin has been satisfied. You know, This is the first step in our journey through the Pentateuch. It's going to be an exciting journey as we see God's story of redemption starting even from the very beginning. And honestly, I look forward uh, to completing this journey together. Uh, Let us pray. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, the one who has created the universe, the one who is in sovereign control, We thank you and we praise you for creating out of nothing, that out of this formless and out of this void, out of this chaos, you have created all that there is, that you have given us value, you have given us an identity and a purpose as your people, and we confess that we consistently choose ourselves rather than you. Lord, you have heard our confession even today. And we confess again that we are not God and that you are. Please forgive us of our sins. Father, as we go from here, I pray that we would live as people of your kingdom who have been redeemed by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would live and walk in the truth of your word that you would use us for the advancement of your kingdom, even here on earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.